it's time to rise. The founders, investors, technologists, changing the face of Asia, intersect on the official Rise podcast with your host, Casey Lau. Age of Three Kingdoms, Kingdom of Heroes, Heroes of Sky Realm. These are just some of the epic games created by Six Waves. On this episode of the RiseCast, I talked to Arthur Chow, who went from working at Yahoo Hong Kong to co-founding Six Waves, which has over the course of the past eight years grown to be one of the leading publishers in Asia for games. Starting off developing games for Facebook, Arthur and his co-founders at Six Waves moved into mobile gaming and quickly spread out across Asia from their home base in Hong Kong. One of the most interesting nuggets of wisdom from Arthur in this podcast is that he recommends not going to China. So, here we go. Arthur Chow from Six Ways on the RiseCast. All right, we're here with Arthur Chow of Six Ways in the Six Ways office. Hey, Arthur. Hey, Casey, how are you? Great, I'm great. Thanks for doing this with us for Rise. Um, so the theme of this podcast will be about Six Waves games and what you're working on now and try to get people to um, learn a little bit more about you before they see you speak at Rise or have seen you speak at Rise in the past. Right. Um, so what I want to do is I want to start at the beginning because I, I love your story. You're actually one of the first super startups here in Hong Kong, at least in this generation, the right. new generation. So you just told me you're in, entering your ninth year now. But you guys, the core founding team started at uh, Yahoo Hong Kong, right? Right. Yeah, that made me feel really old right now. So yeah, we've started the company in 2008 in a very, very small office. Uh, so there are actually four of us. Uh, we actually know each other when uh, we're actually working at Yahoo. Uh, and then we saw the opportunity of Facebook opening up their platform. So Six Ways was actually founded developing apps on Facebook. Uh, and then we actually started to migrate into kind of like, you know, doing games and also publishing games on Facebook. What, what do you think when you heard about Yahoo selling finally after all this time? Um, it's a bit sad in a, in a way because I think the Yahoo alum is still very strong and we're still very proud of what we've been doing before. Uh, but there have been so many changes and, uh, you know, uh, we, we still find that it's, uh, you know, it would have been a better story we would have hoped for. But uh, I guess that's what it is right now. That's the best kind of like, you know, arrangement for them at the moment. Yeah. It's interesting to just see how the tech world changes so fast, even in, within the time that you guys have been around. So, and also the way that you publish your games and distribute your games, right? So we've known you for a long time, and uh, you publish games to Facebook, right? When Facebook was a big gaming platform, but now you're moving completely into mobile. Tell me a little bit about that. Why? What's the change for Facebook? Why mobile? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of actually companies are also kind of like doing the same. I mean, the, the companies that we know uh, for when we were actually developing games on Facebook, I mean, some of them are actually gone. Uh, some of them are actually trying to move to mobile, some being successful, some not so. Uh, but then, you know, we just realized that, you know, back around 2011, 11, 12, um, we just saw the users actually starting to spend more time on their mobile phones. And we just say, hey, you know, we have to think about how to follow our users. Uh, so that's when we start to actually learn about how to actually publish games and also develop games on the mobile platforms. Um, it was actually a painful change for us because we've been doing Facebook, you know, for the longest time and we were actually very dominant and got a lot of users. Uh, so to actually migrate from Facebook platform to mobile, it's actually 
um, it's almost like doing a startup again, right? So we did some reorganization and actually spent a lot of time kind of like putting our heads down and trying to figure it out. Uh, and I think, fortunately, we, we came out pretty strong right now. I mean, we're very strong in Japan, in particular, Taiwan and Hong Kong. Uh, and this year, we're also trying to bring mobile games uh, to the U.S. and the European regions. So let's, and that's interesting, right? Because yeah. Facebook and you guys have been around for a long time now. And so basically, the game people, the game p- players have aged out, do you think? Is it like, so like 10 years ago, they were like, say, 16, 17, and now they're like almost 30. Is that what you're doing? You're re- reconfiguring what you're doing for a new audience or for the same old audience? Um, it's actually the same target audience, I would say. I mean, we, we've actually done a bit of uh, casual games before. I think those are very popular on Facebook. So casual games, like, you know, ranges from your 12-year-old to your 60-year retired person spending a lot of time at home. Uh, but now we're actually focusing more on the mid to hardcore type games where uh, typically, you know, smaller DAUs, but higher ARPPU type of games. And typically, you know, the spenders of these games are actually anywhere from 25 to 40. A little bit more narrower, uh, and it's easier for us to focus and uh, makes a little bit more sense. And we have to be more diligent when we're doing mobile games just because uh, the cost of acquisition is so much higher than when we're doing Facebook games. So uh, by zooming in and focusing on this target segment, uh, it just gives us a better chance of kind of like recouping the, you know, the investment that we have to make on acquiring these type of users. So tell me a little bit about the region now. So you're based in Hong Kong. You've, you've grown to Japan, Taiwan, Korea. T- to walk me through some of the countries and tell me like what is their game penetration? Are like, well, we all know Japan is like massive game users, right? Um, but how are they to like non-Japanese games? Right. So, uh, you know, our Japan office has been around for about six years. Uh, so we're actually one of the largest uh, overseas mobile game publishing uh, company in Japan. Uh, you know, people thought that, you know, it's a very hard market. I would say it is, but I think we just spent enough time and also having a very good local team to make it happen. So the Japan market is actually very interesting because if you look at the top 100 grossing games in Japan, I would say I think 85 and 90 of them are actually local games. I mean, there are so many wow. good Japanese developers yeah. who really understand the Japanese audience, sure. right? So for us to be able to actually have a couple of games uh, on the top 100 is actually very hard. Uh, we've done it by really spending a lot of time localizing the game. So we have a local team. We really do delegate and trust their opinions. Uh, we also have to try to convince the developer that we're working with to make those changes suggested by the local team. Uh, so that's why it become very successful. So not just about localizing the games, the whole operations, uh, the way you market, the, the use of local channels. Uh, we're doing also TV commercials and also TV programs, placements, wow. stuff like that. It's very, very local. And and um, it's a very, very unique culture. But the good thing about the Japanese market is that the users tend to be a lot loyal uh, compared to like even like Taiwan and uh, Hong Kong and also like the Western users. You look at the top 10 grossing games, um, you know, you know, Puzzle and Dragons, uh, Monsters, wow. right? They're still on the top wow. for like three years now. So they're actually very loyal. So once you're actually able to uh, get, you know, uh, get them hooked up, I, I think these are actually very good users. Not only that, uh, they're very willing to pay. I think they're, they're trained or educated when they're like really young kids to actually pay for games. I mean, instead of kind of like, you know, trying to go for like, you know, a bootleg copy so um, it's a very good market if you're able to penetrate so that's why we're actually doubling our efforts we're expanding and doubling the team size uh, in Japan this year that's very interesting actually and I know that for a while and people look at Asia they look at the different countries but Japan has 
like a different kind of culture. They compared to like China, Korea, even Hong Kong, people are willing to pay. They're willing to, and they're loyal to the problem. Maybe can you tell the people are listening maybe a little bit, what is your, like, what is the typical gamer in Japan that's playing mobile games? Is it obviously, it's probably skews male, but how old, what's their income level, how much do they spend a month, things like that? Right, so uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, typically male. Uh, obviously, it depends on different genre. There are actually a couple of so-called romance games in yeah. Japan. Uh, they kind of like follow a love simulation storyline and they're like 95% of them are female. But in general, the top grossing games are typically your RPG type games or strategy games. And these are typically male, uh, 25 to 40. Uh, white collar uh, and you know working class uh, the ARPPU is actually the highest among the world uh, in fact actually Hong Kong is also very high right up there with uh, Japan despite a very small population uh, but you know the pay rate also typically higher so uh, normally a freemium game you know you see pay rate of about you know four to six percent typically overall in the world but in Japan you typically see maybe up to eight to nine percent so it's a good market but it's just that you need to really have to invest the time to localize and make sure you do your customer service well because um, they're very demanding you know they, they expect like a very quick reply Interesting. and then so what's the next big Asian market would you say um, obviously, you know, China is huge. You know, in some sense, you know, if you look at the iOS, you know, top grossing uh, chart by country, you know, China is actually even b bigger than Japan. Um, there's no such data for Google Play because, you know, it's not available in China, but China itself is big. But then I always tell people about China, it's like they always thought about, oh, you know, I can bring my games to China because it's the biggest market. But then the thing is, if you're not Tencent, if you're not NetEase, the chance of success is actually very low. Um, and then there's actually a lot of regulatory, uh, you know, uh, hurdles that you have to go really? through. You have to apply for a license uh, to publish a mobile game now these days. Uh, they were just implementing that like since last year. So definitely uh, that creates a lot more hurdle for uh, overseas developers. Uh, and also, you know, to, to get the distribution, uh, you, you need to actually kind of like, you know, work with a local partner who has a lot of users. So China is a big market, but for us, you know, we're, we're trying to, uh, avoid China just because it's the margins are low, uh, very very competitive, uh, and you know we're actually more interested in uh, you know markets like Taiwan and Hong Kong. You know, first of all, you know we're kind of based here, we understand traditional Chinese, um, and also you know despite the smaller population size, you know in terms of their you know mobile revenue is actually not small at all. If you look at uh, at any's uh, top 10 you know uh, grossing countries uh, Taiwan I think ranks number four in the world last year and Hong Kong uh, number eight so not bad for a, you know a small place with like only seven million yeah, we population have like third, we have a third of what Taiwan has right yes yeah. so so those are actually markets that are actually good at that we're actually also based here so we're actually definitely continuing to uh, looking in these markets um, people also talk about Southeast Asia, right? So they're actually up and coming in terms of population size. You know, it's also huge. You know, you've got Indonesia, you've got Thailand. But then the challenge for Southeast Asia is that it's very diverse, right? They're, each of them, they speak different languages. Uh, and again, you have to spend a lot of time to localize them. But um, I heard a lot of people saying that Thailand is actually a country that's very interesting. Uh, Singapore is good in the sense that it's small, but then again, the ARPP is relatively high. Uh, and also, if you, we talk to a lot of Western developers who already have games in English, so that may actually already work in Singapore. Um, and a lot of actually um, international mobile developers, they use Singapore as a test bed because they do speak English and um, it's a relatively smaller market. Those are markets that is good for pilot. Mm -hmm. All right, I want to go back to what you just said. 
we're not going to China. This is like crazy. Everybody on the podcast has said, let's go to China, let's invest in China, but you are not. Tell me why, or explain why. I, I know why, but you can tell me why. Yeah. And also, what is up? Why is there this new regulation for gaming in China? Okay, so I guess... Um, I think obviously, again, as I explained earlier, you know, China is a huge market. Actually, everyone's saying that we have to go there. But then you also look at you know how competitive it is already in the current state, right? For gaming, ultra competitive. You know, uh, even for the larger, I just came back from Beijing yesterday. Even for the so-called larger gaming companies who've been around for a while, they say it's actually very challenging because it's just that it's it's already been dominated by Tencent and NetEase. So, uh, for a non-Chinese company trying to compete. Uh, in its current state, I, I thought that is the, the chance of success uh, is much lower than you know, uh, you know some of the other Asian countries. Um, so that's why you know we decided not to actually go into China. But having said that, we do have a China office, but it's actually focusing on development. I think China is still good for development just because um, there's a lot of talents. Um, there used to be a lot of gaming companies, but uh, some of them are actually closing down, and and they're also having a lot of challenges, right? So that's why you know there has a little bit more of like a, a supply of talents that are willing that, that that compared to like two or three years ago when everyone's actually trying to go after and so much money being invested in the in the industry. So China, we we took a different stance instead of trying to reach the consumers in China, we're trying to reach the developers uh, in China uh, and and to develop our own game and also work with. Developers who also find uh, Chinese local market being so competitive, they're actually looking overseas. Um, so you know, earlier we actually published a game uh, that's done in Xiamen, uh, and the game was actually focused and, and cater for the uh, Western audience. Uh, so the game is called Heroes of Skyrim, and uh, we launched it in March during GDC week, and we got featured by Apple and also Google platforms for the Western market. So it kind of proven that you know a lot of Chinese developers, in terms of technical skills, it's already up there. They can develop a very good game, but they need help on the marketing and also localizing the games. Uh, and also to, to serve those kind of like Western audience. So we do find there's a potential for us. So we're actually also spending a lot of effort and time uh, working with these partners. So your second question about uh, the uh, licensing requirement. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's not new news in, in a way that you know, the, the, the Chinese government are actually very concerned about um, kind of like entertainment in general, right? So uh, if you want to bring a movie into China, you also have to apply for a license and, and you have to go through all the kind of like uh, bureaucracy. Um, so there are actually different kind of like theories about why they're actually trying to do this, right? One, of course, is to make sure that um, there's some kind of control on, on over what kind of mobile games are actually being available in China. Um, most of the people say, and I tend to agree, it's, it's more about... Um, you know, the concern about violence, you know, kind of like introducing these kind of games to, to the younger audience or having them too addicted uh, instead of any po political reasons. So, um, and, and that's why they are kind of like trying to actually have some control uh, over kind of like mobile gaming, which actually seeing like people spending more time on their mobile phones instead of TVs, right? So if you have some control on TV programming, um, they thought that they should also have some kind of, program, uh, kind of control on the games that people can play. Mm -hmm. So that's why they have this kind of like, you know, uh, procedures that you have to apply for a license. Okay, so I want to go back as well, more on the China thing. So yeah. now you're saying that you're finding game developers in China and you're helping them to publish their games overseas, right? Because they 
maybe they don't understand the U.S. market or even outside of Chinese market, and so you help them do it. Can you tell me how do you do that? Do you guys go out looking for game companies? They come to you, and then what's kind of the process that you go through to get them out there? Sure, it's a bit of both, right? So we do have a BD team in China, so that will、uh, they will actually go and reach out to companies、uh, directly. We will look at you know、uh, what games are actually doing well, or through word of mouth, and see what you know which companies are actually trying to kind of create a game to to reach the overseas market.、Um, and also because of word of mouth, like some of them actually approach us directly. In particular,、uh, for the Japanese market, because I think、uh, it's very unique that we're actually being able to bring. Uh, a Chinese game being very successful in Japan. So that was the game that we published about two years ago called Age of Free Kingdoms.、Uh, the highest,、uh, you know,、uh, rank that we reached in terms of top grossing was actually 19 in Japan,、uh, and it's still like top 50 right now after two years. So、uh, because of that, you know, people were talking in the industry; they would come to us.、Um, so that's how we actually kind of like had this in this initial discussion. So the the process is like this: you know, we look at a game, and then we、we'll、actually we have a team. Of people who will review games and see whether those games are actually appropriate for certain markets.、Uh, so we'll see if these games are actually good for Japan or like you know the U.S. Western audience.、Uh, once we do feel there's a potential match, then we'll talk to the developer about business terms and also、uh, what kind of changes they need to do in the game, be it graphic wise or even the game mechanics or the odds of getting good stuff within the game, right? So、uh, because the Western culture is a bit different, right? They 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 want To be more challenging, they want to think about. Oh, they do well because of their skills. Whereas, like Asia, in particular China, they like to pay to kill, right? So I spend more money, I get better,、um, and I level up quicker, and then you know that's why I can actually beat you up in the game.、Uh, so we actually have to change that too.、Uh, so. Uh, after everything has been kind of like you know modified and changed, we will、uh, then also obviously talk to you know、uh, Apple and also Google platform to introduce the game. So that's how we actually got featured、uh, by them、uh, for the Heroes of Skyrim uh, game uh, earlier last month. Uh, and then once the game is out,、um, oh, before we out, we also do a lot of, like close beta testing, open beta testing. So this is the stuff that we do a lot of value add, right? A lot of developers in China they don't know how to reach out to the Western audience to do user tests and get the feedback. And then they kind of like you know, do the modifications. So this is actually we help to do the lot of heavy lifting.、Um, and then you know we launch the game, do user acquisition,、uh, monitor the metrics,、uh, continue to improve the game, customer service,、uh, building up the community,、um, and ensure you know we have events regularly so that the users will come back to the game every now and then. How many games in your portfolio come come through this way?、Uh, this way meaning from yeah, you find from China or you bring them out. Um, actually, at the moment, most of them are actually publishing、okay. games. So I would say almost like up to eighty, ninety percent of the games are actually third party. We develop one or two games in house.、Uh, it's a long process,、yeah. so we want to balance that out by doing publishing. Where we're still back in the Facebook days, you know,、uh, at the peak, you know, we publish four games a month, right?、Yeah. But now、uh, mobile, we have a lot more, being a lot more selective. So we probably. Maybe publish maybe one or two games every quarter.、Wow. Yeah, very selective. It's very costly、uh, to do user acquisition. So we、uh, try to really look for quality games. So also walk me through this. How big is the team in China? How long is the production cycle? And how much do you think it costs in comparison to say a U.S. game to make a game like this? 
Right. So uh, right now, the team in China is about 35 people. Uh, typically, you know, the development cycle, depending again on what type of games, but nowadays a good quality game takes at least 12 months, I would say, up to 18. Uh, some of the games that we publish, you know, they have like, you know, a 40, 50 person team, you know, developing it for over two years. So it's a very, very, I think users are now very spoiled. Uh, I mean, they've been actually playing a lot of really good quality games and no longer you can create a game in three, six months time uh, for mobile platforms. Uh, so typically, you know, uh, anywhere, you know, the, the cost of developing game, even in China, uh, I would say is it would be at least like, you know, a million US these wow. days because, you know, you have to, you know, pay for the rent and the people for exactly. over a year, right? Um, but still, I think that's like, I would say if you want to do that the same in the US, it will cost you maybe two or three times more. Yeah. And is there a hotspot in China that you see the most games coming out of? Yeah, so basically most of the gaming companies are in Beijing, uh, Guangzhou, uh, Chengdu, uh, also some from Shanghai too. So these are kind of like the key, uh, you know, areas where, you know, good game developers are actually kind of like concentrated in. Do you see any game developers that are that good inside the rest of Asia? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we actually published some Korean games. Korean. So Korean developers are also good in particular for uh, RPG games. Uh, and uh, so the Korean developers are also very outward looking. I think they they know that like just the Korean market is not big enough. So they've been actually doing very well. So for example, like Summoner's War is actually doing very well in, in many countries. Uh, so a lot of Korean startups are actually coming from big companies like Nixon, SCSoft, um, Netmarble these days. So uh, yeah, I mean, we do see a lot of good quality developers coming from uh, Korea and obviously from Japan too, right? But then the Japanese developers are more focused in Japan. own Japan market. I mean, some of them, they actually may work with others too. They, they, they tend to like to license the uh, you know source code out and then they just don't have to worry about it. They trust the partner to do the, uh, you know, the localization. But still, they're not as... Um, aggressive in terms of overseas expansion and when you compare them to China and also Korean developers. All right, so say I'm a developer, indie game developer in LA or London, yeah. and I want to kind of release my game over here in Asia. What are the chances of success just launching into an app store? Just by doing that, I mean, the chance of success is actually relatively low. I mean, it's, it's just that uh, it's so competitive days, these days and, and you're, you're in Hong Kong, right? And then you see, you go out and you see you know, uh, games, uh, commercials on trams, on buses, and, you know, on TVs. They've been actually using a lot of offline ads too. So it's not just about doing your user acquisition on platforms like Facebook or other kind of like online media. Because uh, you can do that like everywhere. Yeah. You, you can sit everywhere in the world. You can still run those campaigns. But having those kind of like local offline campaigns, and those are actually very common in Asia. If you go to Taiwan, even more so, right? Yeah. It's just that Asian Asian cities are very highly populated, right? So that's why these kind of like offline ads make a lot more sense, right? Try to do it in the US. I mean, it's so diverse yeah. and so costly, right? So that's why, you know, um, you know, Asian markets are very different. And obviously, you know, uh, I think Hong Kong is a little bit better in terms of like, you know, willing to play English games. But if you look in Taiwan or you know, Japan, it's going to be like almost impossible, right? So you do really have to localize your game. So say if you're sitting in, you know, elsewhere uh, in the Western world trying to launch a game in Asia, uh, I think, you know, the best chance is really to look for a partner. Uh, if not, uh, even better is having a local office. Do you see any like... Um competition between the mobile games and say 
either just web-based games or even platform games like from PlayStation, Xbox, things like this? Is there because there's a lot of demand of my attention when I walk down the street here in Hong Kong and Wan Chai near the game shops over there for all these kind of games. And sometimes I'm not even sure if they're games anymore. They could be movies or cartoon series or or even uh, Nintendo, the, you know, Switch stuff. Like what's going on there? Yeah, so I think we, we always try to compete with the, uh, the the consumer or the user's kind of like time, right? I mean, because their time is limited. But I think the threat for console and kind of like the web game would be more so because of the uprising of the mobile games. It's just that because this device is always available, it's always in your pocket, right? You're you have like you know five minutes waiting for your MTR, then you just you put it up and do something very quick and simple, right? Um, and and I think you know the threat for these kind of like more established platforms is actually much higher because of the you know the availability of these kind of like smartphones, which by the way is getting more and more kind of like powerful, and also the screen is getting more and more awesome. So we see actually very very high quality games actually coming on those mobile platforms. That's almost comparable to console games. So yeah, I mean. Not so much for us. I mean, for mobile platforms, we're still very, you know, uh, we we do not see too much threat from like you know another new console being released or even like you know, like Nintendo released the Switch. You know, it's a very different thing. I mean, we still see a lot of people spending their time on their mobile phones. Do you find that maybe the IP will be the more of the competition? Pokemon came back in a big way. I, I was it only last year. Pokemon Go yeah. is everywhere, and I still see people running around playing this yeah. thing. Definitely, I think uh, also because of the more established IP, you look at the EA's IP. I mean, they have a huge, you know, uh, catalog, right? So, eventually, you know, if they want to bring these IPs on the mobile platforms, I think there's like a lot of opportunity for them. And you also look at some of the so-called older IPs. You know, we 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 uh, publish a game called Battle High School. Uh, which is uh, a very well-known IP uh, back in the days when we were playing the red and white Nintendo console. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we still have like a, a bunch of really good IPs, especially for people like middle-aged people like me, um, who would actually have this emotional kind of like, you know, uh, attachment to it. And, mm-hmm. and the thing is about like, these games are all free to play, right? Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't think twice to download the game and just try it, right? But then the challenge for us developers and publishers is that you have to make the game that's very interesting and enticing so that they will come back to play it more and eventually, hopefully, they will start to pay for some items in the game. So, um, yeah, I mean, IP is going to be coming in, in, in a big way. Uh, not so just about gaming IP, but also movies IP or, or TV IPs and celebrities IP. You, you, we've got this Kim Kardashian game yeah. that was like crazy, right? But it's pretty much a dressing up game, right? Yeah. I mean, these IPs actually, it's just that because, you know, you have like a mass audience now. Everyone has a smartphone yeah. as comp- compared to like only a selected people who would actually buy a Nintendo kind of like, you know, Game Boy or, or, or console, right? So that's why, you know, IP is going to be more and more relevant. I heard Gordon Ramsay has his own game now. Oh, is that really? Yeah. And it you know, attracts people who like Gordon Ramsay as a character, All and right. then they'll, they'll download the game and maybe eventually play for it. So I think it seems like they're, the game um, field is opening up larger and larger with, you know, with Kim Kardashian, with Gordon Ramsay, people who are not, you know, Pac-Man or like Pokemon, like kids, things that are normally kid stuff. Or super geeky stuff, yeah. right? So, I, I mean, even we saw this coming out on the Facebook platform, right? I mean, a lot of our users, you would not re- regard them as typical gamers. Yeah, your, your soccer moms, right? I mean, they've never played console before, but 
hey, Fanfi was fun, so I started doing stuff, and then all、oh, my friends are also doing it together, so it become like a very social thing. And and again, with the mobile platform,、uh, it's it's always available. You know, you can always access that. So I just feel that you know we have to redefine the word games and gamer, right? Because it's it's getting a lot more broader, right? It's 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 really one, it's kind of entertainment, right? To give you some time to have some fun.、Yeah. Do you think that it will kind of go into business, like gaming mechanics, and this kind of thing is starting to happen in things like Snapchat,、right. where you know you can go on a streak of of talking between your friends, and it rewards you. Also, the Apple Watch rewards me for unlimited or you know consecutive days of hitting my goal. These are all game mechanics. So, do you see that the stuff that you're using, you know, you would be able to? Implement that into like business business apps and things like that. Absolutely, I mean, there's a trend called gamification that is already going on、sure. in the U.S. It's a three billion business,、uh, estimated by 2016.、Um, so I think in the U.S. it's actually more popular. So they use game mechanics、uh, in. Engaging consumer behavior to it's kind of like those air mileage program, right? Yeah, you you、yeah. kind of like you got certain points, you're like a, a gold and a diamond, whatnot, right? So they want to encourage consumer behavior with game mechanics, making it more social, making it's kind of like there's recognition.、Uh, you see that a lot in consumer engagement and also in business, where、uh, most of the time you see it in training, right? Because like you know, typical training is boring. You know,、yeah. give you. Bunch of paper and you kind of try to read it, right? But then、uh, now you engage your employees by giving rewards and level up, and then you can kind of like see who is like the employee of the week, you know,、mm-hmm. by doing all these questions and stuff. So it's definitely there's a lot of potential、um, going in, and I think you know in Asia is is they're trying to pick it up at the moment. You think it'd be more popular here since gaming is almost like a total way of life. Like people read comics here, but、yeah. not as much as maybe say in other countries, but. Um, so there's a lot of this kind of、uh, growth from this kind of culture would affect people who are going into the workforce now, right? You've been in for ten years now, so the twelve-year-olds that were playing maybe Facebook games or not even on that yet are now in the workforce, but they've been growing up these games for so long. So you'd think that that would be make more sense. What do you think would be maybe a barrier? Is it because you think people don't understand it, or they think it's because it's for kids they shouldn't implement it into a, into a workforce? I think you know maybe it's the culture.、Right? I mean, I think those decision makers at the moment, right? I mean, they're not those kids that are growing up. I mean, to 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 tell them that you know,、um, you know, obviously, you know, you have to change the way that you've been doing this. You know,、uh, take some time, and also there's always this budget concern, right? Because if you want to rewrite those training programs, you know,、um, it's going to cost money and time. So you have to go through that initial hurdle and the lump, right? So whoever is going to do that first. Uh, most likely, it's going to be you know su- more successful in kind of like retaining the the employees or having them find them more enjoyable during the training process.、Uh, and I, I think you know the consumer part would be maybe、uh, will take off first. I think you know you see much bigger brands and consumer brands are willing to actually. Uh, implement those, uh, and uh, I think they're seeing like you know better rewards. And and、uh, the good thing about this is that once you have that direct connection with your consumer, it will just lower your future consumer engagement costs. You don't have to always run a TV ad or a big program because you can just reach them through the app、um, or you know your your fan page. So I think the the consumer side will actually pick it up quicker than the the business side.、Mm. I want to talk to you a little bit about technology now.、I'm, we mentioned Pokemon Go before.、Yeah. What do you think is going to be the next big trend with this kind of mobile gaming? Is it going to be augmented reality or virtual reality? 
Um, I think these are kind of like the promised land, right? I mean, people are talking about VR and AR. For me, uh, I think, you know, I, I actually more interested in AR. I think that actually gives us a little bit more um, interesting application, not some, just from the gaming perspective, but also from a lot of like business or medical or kind of like, you know, real uh, situations where you can actually use AR in a, in a very meaningful way. Uh, VR, I mean, we also have a VR team doing some of the uh, kind of like more experiments and trying to develop some games. Um, so we're actually keeping an eye on that. But I think the, the, the initial, it's kind of like a chicken and egg problem, right? I mean, a lot of users uh, are looking for a reason to buy these equipments, right? I mean, of course, you have those Google Cardboard or Daydream yeah headset which is very affordable but then still you know why would i spend some money to buy something that i don't feel the need of getting it yet right so then the developers you know ourselves included i mean we develop a, a hidden object game about fe being featured by google daydream platform but still i mean we don't get a lot of downloads it's just that because you know again you know those not many users are actually finding content enticing content to do so so you know i think we we need some breakthrough i mean we need to have like some one big thing that makes people think, ha, that makes sense. Now I should get it, right? Uh, I think Facebook is trying to push very hard. You know, uh, they just announced the the app about their virtual reality um, thing. And, and maybe because of the social interaction that you can do with that particular app that may uh, create a more network effect so that eventually, hopefully, we get more installed units. So we as developers, we always look at the installed units and also the number of people who may be actually playing or downloading the game. Without a mass, it would be very hard for us to continue to invest. Do you think that it's up to someone like Google or Apple to create the hardware side of this first? Since everybody has a smartphone, it should be all implemented into this device. Yeah, because they already have the kind of like the mass reach, right? So once they got... Uh, the the install base uh, you know there and then we would the developers would then hey you know it finally makes sense you know we can actually make some money on this platform then uh, definitely I mean these are like the, the clear leaders who would actually think about how to actually uh, I think Facebook included you know because they have a huge user base right so if they can develop something that's kind of like a, a killer app if you will that you know so that people could actually jump over the fence and say, oh, I'm in, yeah. then that would be a very different you know, situation. All right, so to go against all that stuff where you're putting helmets on and staying in your own world, I want to talk about eSports. Yeah. So this is like, I would consider this the opposite of a virtual reality, right? Where you're just in your world, you're joining thousands of other people to watch people play video games. And as we've been talking about before, um, Hong Kong is going to get into the whole eSports world and build a stadium here. How do you see this trend happening now in Asia, and where do you think it's going? So I'm uh, I'm not really following that much into it, but I've heard a lot about esports. Um, you know, definitely I think um, in Korea and China is already a big big thing. I mean, there are actually TV programs and obviously a lot of like regular live events that people sit together, not only playing but watching. You know, they yeah. really enjoy watching. I was in some of the kind of like overseas conference and they have like huge arena where people just looking into it. I think uh, there's definitely potential, uh, but I think for Hong Kong, we are lacking behind some of the other Asian countries in terms of the development of esports. I think there may be some teams that are out there. There are actually people who are good in playing some of these kind of games, but to organize a team uh, in a professional way to compete regularly to have these events, I think that needs to be seen. And obviously, you know, I think the government is trying to push for that. Uh, and, you know, if there's actually more people who are actually trying to put teams together, I think, you know, it's going to be interesting. I think 
esports in a way is it's actually also kind of like you know entertainment, right? Yeah. And I think the people would uh, definitely uh, attach to these people because they they. So, for example, like football is one of the most popular spectator sport, right? I mean, the reason why people like it because they can understand the game and they can participate in the game, right? So, for esports to make it popular, um, you have to make sure that you know it's easy for people to understand. What the game is about, and I can actually at least try it. Because if I can try it, then I can appreciate. You know, that's actually very hard, but that person just did it, right? Yeah. So, and I think that's a lot of potential. Yeah, I just wish it came around like 20 years ago, so I could tell my dad I yeah. want to be a video game player as my career. I think that's still a big thing for, especially you know, for places like China, right? I mean, there's still got this unspoken. Kind of like you know pressure about you know hey you have to go to school you have to study and then you know hopefully you work in a bank or be a lawyer or be a professional right I mean to tell them that hey you know um, I'm gonna be like a professional game player that's a uphill battle I think that's very hard but then I think you see in Korea these guys are actually a huge celebrity I mean these kind of like you know esport players it's kind of like a, as popular as a K-pop kind of yeah. like you know singer, so <laughs> oh, that's on. gonna take time. I mean, yeah. I don't know, like the, the people in Hong Kong, maybe they're still very traditional, and yeah. to tell them that, I think it's already starting to change. That hey, you know, I'm gonna do my startup instead of working in a bank. I mean, yeah. that's already getting more acceptance, right? Yeah. Uh, but to become like, oh, I'm just gonna be a professional game player, that's gonna take some kind of like really kind of like you know paradigm shift. Yeah. I think that that's changing though, right? And I think yeah. it comes from places like the West as well, where you know there's YouTube celebrities, oh, yeah. and they just film themselves putting on cosmetics, and they make a they make a living out of that, a very good living, off, off of doing something that they love, passionate about, and can find an audience for. So I think that gaming as a gaming as a career, or or YouTube yeah. YouTuber as a career, these are the new jobs that are coming out in the future, right. and I think that it's very exciting for people, the young people who are who can see this and get on board of it now. Absolutely, I mean, you see that also happening in Hong Kong. There are actually a lot of YouTubers um, who become like you know very well known, and then they go back to more traditional TV media yeah. channels, right? Um, and then also see these platforms like on WeChat where they do live kind of like broadcasts, yeah. and people will send them virtual gifts, yeah. and they do ref share. Yeah. I heard some of the turb earners actually doing very very well. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. But I, I I think you know still I think you know me being a parent. I mean I'm already maybe a little bit more open minded, but it's still going to be a very very challenging for, uh, you know, a lot of people are willing to actually just jump into sure. kind of like doing that. Sure, but not everybody can be David Beckham, anyways, right? Of course. Of course. So, but is your is your are your kids? Are they looking at this as a career? Are you inspiring them to do that? Or like, how does that work? I want to know. From a guy who runs a game company. Um, I'm trying to be open because I think, you know, playing games also has a lot of advantages, right? I mean, it actually trains your brain. You know, uh, you know, my kids actually playing a lot of Clash Royale these days. And it's a good game. I mean, well, it's not violent. I, I wouldn't say. I mean, there's like a little bit of fighting, but it's not really violence. But it, it trains your brain and it trains your how do you actually time your 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 action and also your strategy behind it, right? So, I think you know, gaming is actually. I, I also heard and read a lot of articles about how, like you know, a lot of Western companies and when they do recruitment, they do ask about you know how do you spend your time and your hobbies and and gaming is no longer being kind of like categorized as something like you know only oh like really f weird people really stay weird, at home yeah, yeah. yeah so so I think it's getting actually a lot more popular these yeah. days for for kind of like gamers to be more recognized and sure. I think through games. 
you can actually train up a lot of skills and techniques. Uh, but you know, my kid is still too young. I think it's too early to say you know, uh, you know whether he should develop a, a career in gaming. Uh, but obviously, you know, when you tell kids, hey, you know, you can actually work in a gaming company, obviously they would be very excited. Uh, but I think, you know, the core is actually, you still have to kind of like focus. I mean, you want to be a game developer, you have to be good at math, right? If you're at a very primary school, but then eventually, hopefully you can be a coder or um, you can also, you know, work in marketing for a gaming company uh, or even tester, right? I mean, there's a lot of users who actually been very interesting in uh, doing game testing. Yeah. All right, so let's let's wind the clock back to 2008. You know, when you guys are coming up with a thing, what would you tell your younger self about what, what what's one of the lessons you've learned now over all these years of building up six waves? What would you tell your younger self? Oh, there will be so many many things, <laughs> right? I mean, I think we learn from experience, sure. but um, I think one thing we we would actually have kind of like. Um, done or actually a lot of startups are actually asking me these days is, is try not to take VC money because yeah, or at least not so soon right I mean it's funny I lot, talk a lot of people about like doing their startups they, they think about doing their proposal and pitch even before thinking about their actual business yeah. right I think um, the key is that the best case scenario is that you can still own your company 100%, right? Why not, right? If you can actually manage to make a business out of it. I think some people take VC money too early and um, it just gives you even more pressure to actually deliver more, right? And um, when you're spending someone else's money, you may not be as diligent at spending your money or your friends or parents or angels' yeah. money, right? So um, I, I still feel that um, it's good and bad. I mean, the, the VC and the startup uh, ecosystem has developed so much uh, for the last few years since we started the company actually in Hong Kong, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think thanks to what you've been doing, Casey, I mean, you've been actually pushing a lot. Uh, so that's good, right? But then the, the flip side of it is that some, sometimes startups just too focus on getting money. Yeah. They should think about their business before getting on money. So uh, I think we already kind of like did it quite late. I think we, we took VC money only after maybe three years oh, wow. after we started, two, three years. Um, but, you know, if, I, if, if one advice that I could give startups these days is try not to even take it. That's a challenge, right? Because if you can actually manage by um, using a little bit, you bootstrap your company and, and really focus on try to see how it, it might work, um, that that that, that's a very good fundamental to build. I always think I always joke about this. I think the best investor in a Hong Kong startup are your parents, uh, right? <laughs> you just stay at home. You keep a low overhead. You develop, 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 right? Or build whatever you're doing, and you don't have to worry about. It, and that's the best way to go about it. Obviously, and also you know, if you think of it that way, so there are actually also a board of directors, right? So you have to convince them by, hey, you know, uh, I'm not gonna take a you know a paid salary job, but you know, I'm just gonna kind of like do this. Give me six months, give me 12 months, whatever yeah. it might be, right? Exactly. I mean, parents would be kind of like the driving force for Hong Kong startup in the future. Yeah. So what do you think, just quickly on that, um, what do you think of the ecosystem now? I mean, I'm sure you meet a lot of startups that are pitching you their ideas. You know, are they hungry? Are they cognizant of the global market now? Because, you know, back, you know, five, six years ago, they're like Hong Kong, we're developing apps for Hong Kong. Yeah. Now they're developing games for like the whole world. But what do you see? Yeah, I think it's getting better and better. I think they have a much bigger vision. I think the thing about Hong Kong is that a lot of startups, they're actually done by you know people not from Hong Kong. 
they just happen to be here at the yeah. moment, right? Yeah. So that actually expands a lot of vision. And then with all this kind of like co-workspace and all these events that's going on, I think that would actually broaden the perspective uh, for a lot of startups and they could also learn from each other, right? I mean, I sometimes also participate, participate in these events and I can also learn so much from them, you know? Uh, so the future is them, uh, theirs. I mean, it's, it's up for them to take it. And uh, I think it's definitely getting a lot better. And, and I think, Hong Kong is such a small market, right? So they, in a way, it's good. We're forced to actually think about the global market. All right. Thanks a lot for your time today, Arthur. We'll see you at Rise in July. Great. Thanks a lot. That was Arthur Chow from Six Waves. I think some great insight into the mobile gaming market out here in Asia. Arthur will be speaking at Rise this July 11th to the 13th in Hong Kong, alongside some other gaming legends like Min Lian Tan from Razer, Jeff Linden from iDream Sky, Andy Zhang from Fun Plus, Jim Yang from Supercell, and Rise cast veteran Yatsu from Outblaze. As we get closer and closer to the big date, July 11th to the 13th, follow Rise on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest info on the conference and when we add new speakers. And you can follow me on Twitter at Casey underscore Lau and tell me what you think of this podcast. That's it for this episode. See you in Hong Kong. And remember, and I will not phone it in. I will be the first one here at 10.30 a.m. And the last one to leave a smidge after four. 